0: a child they don't understand what domestic violence is they would understand more what being cruel is than domestic violence which brings me to an area that when you're working with offenders in your program which i think you said is about 27 weeks
1: yeah our program is yes
0: um and you've talked about working with um, offenders and the effect that it has on their partners um you would also work with them on the effect that it has on children and the violence towards children, because there's a high correlation of um, violence in relationships and the impact and violence on children. Because often where there's domestic violence, there's also violence upon yeah. children. Did you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, we're we are struggling with that right now, mm. and there's a great conversation going on in the states, and I don't know if it's going on here in Australia about. Restorative justice program. Yes,
0: there is in Newcastle. Actually, we have the University of Newcastle's got a really, um, a really good program on restorative justice. So they've actually a, got a lot of research in that area. It's
1: exciting to think about the potentials of what restorative justice can can bring to domestic violence. We're struggling with how do you you uh, uh, make restorative justice available on a broad scale, you know, in any individual year, there's 2,500 domestic violence arrests in Shawnee County alone in our little community. And how do you create an opportunity to access restorative justice programming opportunities for those people? So, you know, at what scale, how do you scale it? We've been using a apology and reparation session, which is, you know, really beautiful restorative justice practice. And we found it to be very time intensive to be preparing, preparing the kids for the conversation, preparing the partners for the conversation, bringing in support systems and preparing them for the conversation, not to mention preparing the person who's done the cruelty and the violence for that conversation. And when we use these practices, we can see uh, the, the 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 youth stop blaming themselves. They understand it wasn't their fault that their mother had been hurt. It's a, it wasn't their fault that they had been beaten. That the responsibility lands solely on the person using the cruelty in the relationship, and that piece in and of itself is such a relief for kids to realize. This was not me. I couldn't have protected my mother. It was my dad, my stepdad, whoever it was. It was them.
2: The problem with that, the last apology and reparation session we did, three of our staff were involved, myself and two others, and we had more than 200 hours of our time in that in getting that apology and reparation session accomplished Amazing. and no funding. I would that, imagine this not- that That was, and I can tell you, the only reason that we actually did that at that point was, it was a case where the only thing the offender had to do before getting his kids back without any kind of visitation requirements The victim came and told us the only thing standing between him and that is finishing your program. And in our program, years ago, we put it that if children are harmed, we can require apology and reparations to happen. And we did. In that case, I was so pleased with the outcome overall, particularly for the kids. And he did continue to come even after He completed our program. He continued to come for some time. Um, I'm
0: sure that the children would have appreciated the 200 hours worth of work you do. And I mean, I think that's when in the work that we do, we give so much of our time. I mean, we do so much pro bono work too because sometimes we just need to do that. So, I mean, as a children's lawyer, I appreciate that you did that for that family because I find in my job, that no matter what happens to children, particularly in the care and protection space where children are removed from their parents or they don't get to see their parents, that they do want to have a relationship with them right. and no matter what has happened to them, they want to have that relationship. And I find as they get older, they'll seek their parents out. So it's a really fine balancing act as what we do as to no contact, as to limited contact or as to some meaningful contact. And so I am very interested in the um, program that you're talking about in terms of the apology um, and that sort of work that you do.
2: So I think one of the real benefits of a good uh, domestic violence offender program is if it has some real strong focus on parenting and the impact on kids actually that's the thing that prompted us initially to even write our own curriculum the curriculum that we were using had a small section on parenting but we wanted it much larger than that because that is one thing that often motivates those who are coming into the program more it's like when they really get an understanding of how their behavior is impacting the children they will become more motivated to make positive change than them getting an understanding of what they're doing to their partner they see
1: themselves as really good dads and which is an external focus perspective right they're not taking into account some of the horrible things that they have done because they feel justified. You know, This is what happened to me, this is how you handle it when things are not going well. But one of the things that we have added and that our staff just recently used with one of the groups is we have a children's river of cruelty in our component where not only are the participants looking at their own river and what happened to them, their own story, but they're asked to make a list of all the cruelty that their kids have experienced and then play that out. How has that affected them? And then the final piece of that whole conversation is now as a dad, knowing what has happened to our kids, the trauma, the cruelties that have been experienced by our children, what are some things that we can do to begin begin the healing process? And that's an amazing conversation because we all want to be good parents. We all, you know, that is a common desire. But Charles, one of our completers who just we were talking to the other day, he said, I have never, I'm 40 years old. I've never seen a healthy relationship in my life. How am I supposed to create one in my family? And he put it on his nail on the head because he has no vision of what it looks like. Well, no
3: understanding. How can you teach something that you've never been taught? And that's why the apology is probably so important to the children because then hopefully it stops the offending the next generation or at least awakens something in them that, you know, what he's saying, sorry, so perhaps this isn't my normal. Perhaps this is not how it should look.
1: That's yeah. right. And just in a sideways thing, that speaks volumes to the people who have grown up in domestic violence and cruel families and have found ways to live peaceful, reasonable, kind lives mm-hmm. and raise kids differently than they were experienced. It's amazing that those people can do that. and Because uh,
0: that does happen. I it mean, does happen. I mean, I've worked with many um, um, parents who have grown up in... Um, very terrible abusive families who haven't um, offended in any way yeah. so uh, that does happen
1: I and it's too. wonderful yeah. and it gives us hope right yeah, it that does this is give possible us hope. right
3: but those people have to have some sort of different inner strength don't you think to be able to break a cycle without having any positive guidance through your child and maybe
0: they've had positive guidance from elsewhere other from too, schools
3: other and
1: Alice Miller speaks to that. Uh, She talks about the best uh, uh, intervention, the best reduction of the impact of cruelty is what she calls the enlightened witness, the person who can speak to the children's pain their experience and can love them and just be there. And so many times it's grandmother who lives down the road, who knows that, you know, this boy is growing up in a chaotic household, but The boy can just go to grandma's house and be safe and loved and accepted for who they are. The more emotional supports that people have around them, even in the middle of the chaos, takes some of the edge off of the cruelty that's happening. And the survival base, what Dorothy was talking about earlier, one of the hallmarks is their common lack of emotional supports. They have nothing and they will say, if I lose my partner, I will have nothing. They see themselves with no social supports. They see themselves as alone, and they never want to go back to that. And so these emotional supports that teachers, educators, case managers, therapists, you know, all, the, all these advocates, neighbors, neighbors uh, church, you know, wherever it is, those emotional supports make so much difference. Uh, and we don't know until years later what kind of difference that actually makes. But, man, that's what Alice Miller says is a the way to intervene with cruelty today.
3: So some, um, some judges um, have been known to say that it's not their job to make a better parent. I strongly disagree with that because I think that people within the family law court system, we have an obligation to help people be better parents, not for them, but for their children and for the next generation. Um, So we're not having um, the program's mandatory audit, uh, which I think is a real shame, particularly when we were talking about the intake process. But what are your feelings on that where the court intervenes and says, you know what, you've got to do this in a parenting matter, particularly, you know, in the family court jurisdiction?
1: Well, Dorothy, you look like you were ready to fire at that one.
2: Well, the reality is we cannot help someone who isn't making that call, isn't coming into our room. And so often, <clears throat> the ones that need it the most, they don't even know that they need it. Yeah. So I think of it kind of like uh, training a horse. If we have a horse out in the middle of a pasture, um, and I've been in that spot as a kid. We used to train some horses. And if they're out in the middle of the pasture, there's not a whole lot you can do with them. So you have to get them in the corral. And the corral is all of the different agencies and uh, the courts, et cetera, that keep that person moving forward toward getting into a program. So accountability is critical. Accountability is the fence around the offender. That doesn't make them change. Accountability in and of itself does not make them change, but it it gives the environment for the change to happen, and then you have to have a skilled facilitator in that corral with them, just like you have to have somebody who knows their stuff if they're going to, if that horse is going to get ridden. So, without that mandate, any time that a man, that domestic violence is happening and the mandate doesn't happen, it's wishful thinking that they're going to just on their own go get the help. It's a missed opportunity. It's a missed opportunity. It really
3: is. And I see it in court every day. And I think just another one missed. So as a children's lawyer,
0: we can ask to frame orders that um, a parent can do certain programs. And I think we used to quite often would say that if there was um, domestic violence, that um, a parent would have to go and do a a behavioral change program. There's been a bit of a shift away from those orders because it's been like, well, they should take responsibility and do that themselves. But what I hear you saying is that they're probably unlikely to do that. So we should probably start looking at putting those orders back in place because at least it will make them take that first step. What they do after that is up to them, but at least it gets them in the door. So is that what I hear that you're saying that we should suggest again back to the in the courts, because we have that sort of, as a children's lawyer, we can sort of facilitate that process. You
1: know, we, we are in conversation in the United States about how to, you know, make the criminal justice system less of the dominating force that gets people into programming. And how do we invite people to choose to come and get the help that they need? And I think that's wonderful if that can occur. But for the Those who are battering, who are dangerous. Those who are battering, who are seeing themselves as without her, I am nothing. Those who are using cruelty and don't believe that they have a problem, that it's somebody else's problem and not their. They are not coming by just kind of, oh, I think I recognize I have a problem. They need someone to build a fence around them that says this behavior is not acceptable. You know, this behavior is damaging our communities for generations, and we're going to do what we can to intervene today. And so we're going to ask you to go to this class, and we're going to expect you to complete this class, and we're going to you know, hold you accountable for the violence and cruelty that's being used in families because it's just going to keep, it'll invite the next generation to be sitting in this courtroom you know, in 20 or 25 years from now.
2: I think that it takes even more than that, though. I think, yes, having it written in, you've you've got to complete this, is critical. Then, in order for that to be effective, for the family court system to be providing the necessary information to the men's, changing behavior program. So they really know what is going on. I think that's one of the challenges that we've seen. Whereas in, in criminal court cases, if we see the police report, if we see what has happened, um, there's some, some evidence that has gotten them referred. In family court cases, we often are being told, here, they need to complete your program, but the information about why they need to complete the program is sometimes much more sparse. And it's
3: probably really powerful for you to have the affidavit of the victim and the independent children's lawyer engaging with your facility but I suppose the big question is, is there's such a backlog here that it's um, almost impossible to get into a program, even if you wanted to, even if it was court mandated. How effective are your programs if you were to, if we were the perpetrators here and they're doing it via Zoom? Like, um, have you had some changes since COVID like the rest of us or, you know, what can you do and, and how effective is that style of program for you?
1: Yeah, we, uh, when, when the shutdown occurred in, in Kansas, uh, our first thought was we're doomed. Uh, our program is in-person. We, we put a very high premium on everything occurring face-to-face. And we had a choice. We could either figure out how to do it on Zoom or just close. And so we didn't see we had anything to lose to try to figure out, can we do it on Zoom? And so we started migrating people and teaching people how to set up a zoom account and how to, you know, you know, link into a meeting. And our staff to a person would say how surprised they were of how effective it can be on zoom. Uh, we have most of our programs right now on zoom. That is not desirable. We want to have about 50%. You know, we want to have, we, I think everyone to a person would say that in-person is better overall, but the conveniences, the benefits of an online program in rural Kansas, where there, you know, someone might have to travel a hundred miles to get to their weekly program, it's just, there's so many barriers that are eliminated by a online program that it makes it really, really viable.
2: We did a survey, a pretty extensive survey and uh, I presented that at the United Nations Commission on the Status for Women last year. And what we found when we uh, reached out and, and in the survey uh, asked victims about what was the impact of your offender coming to the, the uh, classes via Zoom, they were so relieved that their offender was getting getting intervention services. It was not a matter of, oh, well, I don't like this and this scares me or all of the things that so many professionals were worried about. We did not hear that from the victims. Instead, we heard this has made a difference. Thank God that you guys are doing this. and And so that was pretty relieving. When it comes to outcomes of our program overall, We've done several different studies. One of them was done when I was at the Office of the Attorney General, uh, because one of my charges when I was there was to get battering intervention programs of higher quality across the state of Kansas. And in doing that, we ended up getting uh, statutory changes and for programs to, be, to become certified, they had to follow the essential elements and standards that we developed in Kansas. They had to be around 27 weeks long. Um, and then we wanted to see, are these programs making a difference? So what the Office of the Judicial Administration, along with the Office of the Attorney General and the Battering Intervention Program Advisory Board, came together and did a pilot project where we looked at six different programs across the state, had those programs that were already certified for the full year of 2012, submit all of their completers and then the office of judicial administration looked at has this person committed another person crime and has this person uh, had another, another protection order taken out against them and we looked at that in the fall of 2015. What we found was that 88 percent had not had another person crime And 90% had not had another protection order taken out against them. Now, that certainly doesn't tell it all, but our legislators were very happy with those responses. Um, We also wanted to look at the Family Peace Initiative recently to look at... uh, taking it a step further. Not only was um, was there a charge, but were the police even called to do another domestic violence lethality assessment? So in Topeka, ever since I think 2014, the officers have been, when they're called out on a domestic, so to speak, uh, they are required to do a lethality assessment. So what we got curious about is of our completers, how many of them had another lethality assessment? Had the police come out and,
1: and, and another just called because yeah. they were afraid. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
2: right. Mm-hmm. What we found was that 85 what the shelter program did the the research did looked at all of our completers in the past six years and were the police called out again to their residence. And the shelter program found that in eighty five point one percent of the cases the police were not called doing another lethality assessment.
3: Amazing. And you and I have talked about this over the years, haven't we? we we? And and I'm such a strong supporter of of these programs, mm. and that's exactly why, and that's why we need to be mandating yes. it through the court system. Well, I
0: think we need to get the information out to the community and absolutely. because the benefit not only for um, people who are in that relationship, the victims and the survivors, but the benefit for children, yeah. because children want to have relationships with their parents. Yeah, right. yes. and you know if we can if we can change behaviour, then it benefits the children and it benefits generations because, I mean, I see children all the time. I mean, I work with them in the areas of the children's court in child abuse. I work with them in family law areas. I work with them in civil areas and, you know, they always want to have that relationship Mm -hmm. but... No contact orders don't work for children in the long term. Limited contact orders don't work for children in the long term and children blame themselves quite often. So we really, I think it's so important that we can look at things differently. So that research that you've um, undertaken just shows incredible um, statistics as to change and I just commend you for your work and your dedication um, to the community and to what you're doing in your work because it's quite enlightening for us to hear um, how positive it is and (laughs) the way forward. And I just wish that we could just get that, well, we're going to try and get that message out as much Mm. as we could because I think we find that so often that, you know, here we have an offender, let's have no contact and they don't get to see their children anymore um, because they won't engage in a program and we just don't have enough programs and that's a
3: really big, and issue. our programs aren't long enough. They need more meat to them. They need to be more trauma informed. Mm. And I've found that we've tried to recreate the wheel again where we don't need to. All the all the research is there in in the states, in in England, where they have some phenomenal programs. Um, in in the Scandinavian countries, it's all already there. We just really have to pick one.
0: But I think, Dorothy, what you'll find really quite um, disheartening that I come across in particularly the care jurisdiction is that we have children who are removed from their families. You probably have it the same in the US because um, women haven't, they have left the offender but might not have left them quick enough and so their children get removed and then the women are told they're not protective enough and even though they've left the offender after they're removed they don't get their children back and we have to fight really really hard for that and I just think there's just something really broken in the system mm-hmm. and so you know not only is the um the child is being I guess I would say punished in that respect they're you know they're, they're not living with their mother who is the victim of that violence they're not seeing the father who's being the offender of that violence, they're in a foster care system where they have multiple placements who they often suffer abuse. So have you come across that situation in your work?
2: Unfortunately, that is all too often. And I think when it comes to the victim, it is easy for the system to say, shame on you, you let him back in the home again, I can't believe you did that. When the system itself, has been incapable of keeping the offender out. And when the victim is hearing the pounding on the door and knows that if they don't open it, that their chance of surviving is questionable, it's like, I'm going to open the door and play nice. Because, because... That's the only thing, the only option that they see as viable at the time. And then they get punished for trying to pacify. And there's a a lot of judgment about them. It makes it easy to be um, be making the victim go through all kinds of extra hoops and say, Say they are codependent. Well, I think a lot of that is forced dependency. Yes. So,
3: that
0: they're not protective, that they have yes. no insight, that they, and I think that um, that's why it's so important that these programs, this program that you've developed, um, that we can roll out more across our country, because not only will it help people. Um, in the family law system, the criminal justice system, but in our care and protection system because we have such a high rate of children in out-of-home care um, that we really need to stop also.
3: But maybe we could change the narrative of it. So instead of it being what people perceive as being perpetrator-focused, if we change the narrative to it being child-focused, then government... Um, is more likely to jump on board because it's not controversial. It's, it's something that's palatable to to them.
0: So maybe that's some homework we can give you that you could go away and, and think about another way we could um,
3: market, it. market
0: it or change the focus on um, the way we talk about it because I think when we talk about um, it from a perpetrator's perspective, Um, people do switch off about that language. If we talk about it from a a child-focused perspective, because what you're talking about is trauma-informed therapy, Mm -hmm. you're talking about children maintaining relationships with both parents, you're talking about respect, you're talking about resilience, you're talking about survival. If I'm hearing what you're saying correct, um, you're talking about um, cruelty, how to recognise that, how to overcome that, how to deal with childhood trauma that people have experienced and what shapes that. You're talking about developing insight, long-term behavioural change and a better community and stopping intergenerational um, abuse really is what you're talking about and about empowering each other. I think is that in a nutshell what I understand you're talking that's about? An amazing oh, that's amazing summary. So <laughs> if we can, you know, I guess think about our language because that's what you're also talking about is language, the way we use language in order to look at change of behavior and the way we talk about in the community and how we talk about with our peers is important because when we use words like perpetrator and domestic violence um, I think people go oh do I really want to hear about that exactly
2: and incidentally that's why we changed our name years ago our name, What we called the program years ago was Alternatives to Battering. Yes. What is then we changed it to then? the Family Peace Initiative.
3: Yes, because we did but, ask it at the commencement. Well, remember when we first met, and I can remember one of the first things that you said to me and I was talking about men's um, behavioural change programs, and you were like, oh, my God, what a great name. Oh, I wish we hadn't. Didn't call it. Uh, what do you call it? Batterer intervention programs. And I can remember. And I thought, oh no, but that's so much more powerful because I don't. I didn't understand how language was so important in our conversation with perpetrators and about perpetrators. Mm-hmm.